This summer, I, was, I spent some time in Spain, as some of you know, walked the Camino de Santiago with a number of our current students and a number of our alumni. And we were told by some of the, the Spaniards that had helped us plan our trip that there was a feast of St. John the Baptist during the time when we would be in Spain, and that in Spain and, in fact, throughout Europe, it's commonly celebrated uh, by staying up all night, build a bonfire, everybody hangs out, grills out, has some beers. It's a nice, it's a nice fun time. There's jumping over the fire. I think, I assume that happens after the beers are consumed. But it's a, a festival that's, that's common and people uh, really recommended we try to find one. So we happened to be in a town the night of St. John the Baptist uh, and his feast day. And we wandered around looking for one of these parties. That is another whole story of the adventure of finding one of these one of these uh, bonfires, but we eventually did, and just pretended like we were supposed to be there. We just you know, walked in and grabbed something to drink, and they gave us something to eat, and we hung out. None of us spoke uh, Spanish, <laughs> except me, so, uh, so some of them spoke English, and we tried as best we could to enjoy the evening. We, we did. It was a wonderful evening, and uh, got to know some of them. One young woman in particular, I remember uh, a number of the students talking with, a number of our pilgrim group. She did speak English and just talking about life in Spain, growing up in a small town, asking about what their life was like and particularly about their, uh, their faith. At some point, we were talking about the Camino and we were doing it for explicitly a, a religious purpose, which is not very common, unfortunately. Most of the people who walk that route, that ancient Catholic pilgrimage route, are doing so for, you know, tourist reasons or maybe to explore some things about themselves personally but, but without a real connection to the, to the faith. Well, we asked this young woman how many of her friends, including herself, were, were Catholic and she said, well, all of us. And how many of them were practicing? She said, well, really none of us. None of us go to church, though we were all baptized and raised to, to be Catholic. And when asked about what the reason for that was, she didn't know that I was a priest. I was just dressed like a civilian. Is that the right word? <laughs> um, she spoke very frankly about the scandals of, of priestly behavior in, in Spain. Not just the sorts that we're accustomed to hearing about in the news nowadays and for the last couple of decades, uh, but also just the personal lack of holiness and entitlement that priests would often show. She talked about how uh, oftentimes priests were nowhere to be found until it was time for the local festival. And there would be a big procession and a large party, and of course the church brought in a lot of donations during this time. And after that, a uh, priest would often be found with a new car or a new cow. Apparently that's a great way to spend your money in Spain. <laughs> but they were shepherds who were not interested in caring for the flock, was the way she put it. Now, this, coupled with some of the news, if, if you're paying attention uh, about the Catholic Church here in the United States, gets me thinking, and I, I thought about that conversation later, and particularly in context of today's readings, which are an occasion for me to talk about something that is very difficult and that I did not intend to talk about. I don't think the homily is necessarily the place to do the sorts of things that uh, we have to do and that we have to address. But given some of the news that came out uh, just last night, coupled with 
the Pennsylvania grand jury report and the scandal associated with Cardinal McCarrick and his removal from uh, the College of Cardinals and the accusations of sexual abuse against him uh, convinced me that I, I have to say something. Um, most recently, however, um, a member of the church, a high-ranking member of the church, has leveled some very grave accusations against other very high-ranking members of the church, including uh, our Holy Father. So, what are we to do? What are we to think? Of course, as I think through that conversation that I had with that young woman on the Camino, I wanted to say to her, well, I agree with you that that's extremely disappointing and against everything that the priesthood is supposed to stand for. But the sinfulness of the church doesn't change the truth of the word of God any more than the sinfulness or the lack of uh, proper conduct on the part of a biology professor changes the truths of biology. The sinfulness of the church's members do not compromise the truth of God's word, even though they obscure it. However, I know for us to make that distinction is uh, very difficult because we expect more of the priesthood. We expect more of the church than we do of biology professors. We expect the priests to preach by their lives, not only by their words. And when they fail to do so, we rightfully recoil in shame. I also saw on that young woman's face something like the opposite of what we hear in the gospel today. Peter, when asked, are you going to leave me too? Responds, Lord, what else is there? Where else could I go? What sense would it make to leave behind not a, not a, a sinful teaching, but a difficult one, one that I can't comprehend, one that I can't understand, and go wandering again? What good would that do me? I saw in that young woman's face a kind of wistfulness when she spoke about the failures of the church. A sadness. She didn't delight in it. She wasn't angry about it. She wasn't uh, enraged or incensed. It was sad to her. She didn't want that to be the case, but it was. I think we see in St. Peter's answer today what the true alternatives are. It's not between one form of life and another. It's not between one form of meaning or hope and another form of meaning or hope in life when we choose between, between God and everything else, when we choose between discipleship in the church and everything else. It's really between hope and despair, between purpose and meaninglessness. And I saw that group of people, something like a, a sheep without a shepherd, a disenchantment and a malaise over those who cannot live within a broken church. And so as we, as we look out and see that the church appears to be anything but that bride we heard about in the second reading, that Christ cleanses and washes to drive out of her any spot or wrinkle or blemish, blemish or any such thing, when the church is anything but sanctified, 
we are rightfully discouraged. And so, we have to take a hard look at what has happened. That when the church forgets the one to whom she is to point, when she is more concerned about her own image or her own reputation, or protecting what she's built, the rot begins. Corruption begins. This, sadly, uh, is a necessary process. And if there's any consolation, if there's any light to be shed here, it's that when those who are responsible for those terrible crimes, for their lack of fidelity to the call of the priesthood and to oversight of the church as bishops are held responsible, the church will be better. These situations, these events, these crimes, this abuse was not necessary. It was avoidable. It could have been avoided. It it did not have to happen. But it did enormous harm. Lives have been permanently traumatized. Some of them ended as a result of the grief that has been brought about and the shame that has been brought about by members of the church. And so, we can only pray that the Lord will drive out what has been the occasion of this terrible rot and corruption within the church. As the saying goes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. As as ashamed as I am to see these things spoken of, things that should not be mentioned, things about which we should not think. Even so, I, I hope that the Lord will use this to bring about a church that is truly faithful to him, that is governed in such a way as to protect those who need to be protected and to hold responsible those who need to be held responsible. As I read through the 11-page testimony of the former papal nuncio, who uh, just released this document yesterday, detailing the the bishops and cardinals who were implicated in these decisions which allowed men who were guilty of covering up abuse to continue in positions of great influence in the church. I was brought back to um, a quote from a book that I read a long time ago, one that was written a long time ago, long before these scandals became public. It's a book entitled, A Short Primer for Unsettled Laymen. Very appropriate title. He said, the author of this book, also a cardinal. One cannot deny that it is more difficult today to be objectively a Christian, to be known as a Christian, as it was in earlier times. I I had a a little experience of this, actually, side note. Um, I was on vacation on a camping trip with some priest friends of mine, and we were gathering some firewood out of a campsite, and somebody had struck up a conversation with us. This person was um, three sheets to the wind on a Sunday morning. And when we bantering, kind of joked around about, uh, no, we're not selling the wood, we're, we're uh, collecting it for charity, namely ourselves, we're going to burn it in a, a campfire, uh, this, this young woman got very suspicious, started asking us who we were, where we were from, who we were with. I said, well, Catholic charities. And she proceeded to call me uh, well, some pretty heinous names, not knowing that I was a priest just that I was Catholic. I know 
the looks that you get at work or from family members who don't share your faith or friends or other people when you mention these things. I know how you want to shrink away and not deal with that reputation of the church, which has unfortunately been her own fault. That is not easy to do. That is a particular form of suffering that we're dealing with here and now. It's, it's happened in other times of the church, but uh, for us, this is relatively new in the modern age. It's more difficult. The quote continues, there's no longer any shelter. We can't take refuge in society, mistrusting the church. Lord, to, to whom shall we go? But neither can we snuggle into the church and hide from the demands of the society around us. The heart of the church herself is laid bare and even pierced like that of her Lord, so that anyone who wishes to take shelter in her enters something naked and wounded. The monstrance in which the host is exposed is itself exposed, and the Christian must decide to be so with it and to be so in it. And so the monstrance, the church, which is meant to show Christ to the world, has been exposed together with her Lord, and along with him becomes insignificant, as he became insignificant, with no form or comeliness, no look upon his face that could please us. Yet, yet, everyone is still drawn to look upon the one whom they have pierced. Why is there still, in this formless ugliness, the epitome of all form, of all beauty, which dries all eyes to itself in fascination? I never before myself have had to ponder the questions that are being brought up now. I find myself asking, what would it take, how bad would it have to get for me to say, I can no longer be a part of this? That's a terrible thought to have to confront. It seems to be getting more and more intense as the weeks go by. Perhaps you've had the same thought. Yet I'm brought back to that same question that Peter asked Jesus. Lord, where, where would I go? What's the alternative to say, not this, but what? What? As my friend, uh, Father Tom Byrne, is fond of saying, the only way I leave is when they carry me out in a box. That's the only answer to something like this. And as we endure the shame, the frustration, the righteous indignation, the sorrow that we see in the victims and those who have been so courageous in coming forward to do their part, to bring the light into the church, we continue to trust that God is using this to make us stronger and that we must trust in him. Anything less than that is to deny that he has those words of eternal life and that they cannot be found. They cannot be found in this world. I'm sorry that the second week of the semester, this is something that I, that I addressed. I hope that I will not have to do so again. But I hope that our community here knows that with time uh, and God's grace and courage on the part of the leaders of the church, 
and also of lay people to speak out, to continue to influence and put pressure on the church to cleanse, to be cleansed of these, uh, of these sins, of this corruption, that we will truly be able to affirm, along with the saints, that the Lord does indeed have the words of eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.